All right, I'm going to start over with the questions. Okay. Uh, why is discipline important? Two, should the church be involved in spiritual discipline? Three, how might we do spiritual discipline within the church family and why? Four, what constitutes the need for discipline? Five, how should we receive spiritual discipline if we're the one being disciplined? And six, what does this all mean for me right now in this moment? Okay, so those are the questions that we're going to try to answer today. So why is discipline important? Has anybody seen the previews for the movie The Purge? So the premise is basically this. Uh, for 12 hours every year, there is no law. And you can do whatever you want, including murder, whatever you want. And um, the idea is that in some way this might help sort of purge the society of the things that aren't good. Well, guess what genre of movie The Purge is? It, it, romance, that's right. Rom-com, yes. Yeah, it's a horror movie, right? Because it's the idea that for 12 hours, anybody can do anything to me, and there's no consequences, there's no discipline. That's a horrific thought, right? And so this is actually the third uh, movie in the, uh, what do you call it? The series or... The family of movies here, The Purge, okay? This means if there's three movies that this is an extra horrifying thought, right? This idea of a world in which there's no, there's no government intervention, there's no rules or laws, no accountability. And uh, what's interesting is that the Apostle Paul actually speaks to the same idea. In Romans 13, Paul says this, he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad conduct. You would have no fear of the one who is in authority if you did what is good. Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. <clears throat> Paul's basically saying this, that God has instituted human government for our good. We call this God's common grace, because he knows that where there is no rule of law, where there is no consequence for actions, then sin prevails, that it runs rampant, that it's not saying that government makes the world uh, the best it could possibly be. It just means government keeps the world from being as bad as it could possibly be. And part of that is this function of rule and consequence, uh, discipline when you go astray. Now, I'm not saying that every government is created equal or that there's somehow a perfect government. I'm just saying government in general, Paul would say, is God's common grace in our life so that we do not have to live in constant fear for our lives, that it's not a constant state of the purge. Does that make sense? I think we understand this concept well if we think about it. I'm a basketball player and... Um, if you've ever played basketball where there's no referee, where there's no sort of rule of law, no consequences, it's not a beautiful thing. In fact, when I was in high school, we used to do this. Uh, we used to teach second and third 
or it's second and third grade uh, boys basketball. We used to be the coaches and we'd be the referees. Now we were high school kids, and so we wanted to be the cool referees. And so we tended not to want to call any fouls. We just kind of let them do whatever they wanted. And the thing is, is that was the worst thing for these, we used to call them little dribblers. It was terrible for them. Uh, even the strong ones, you think, oh, the strong kids, the big kids, they'd love the fact that we never called fouls and we just let them dribble out of bounds and all this stuff. Uh, we were terrible referees, but the result was not more joy for the kids. It was less joy. It was frustration. It was, what is going on here? Beauty comes out of boundary and rule and consequence. This is how God brings out his best in the world. And the best kind of basketball comes with the best kind of refereeing and the most clear articulation of the rules and discipline when the rules are broken. So we should love boundaries. We should want them to be enforced because it's for the benefit of both the individual and the community, not for the suppression of our freedom, not for the suppression of our individuality. And in the same way, the discipline that the Lord allows into our life is for our good. It's His grace. It's not His punishment. Now as we look at the Bible and we ask, what does the Bible tell us about discipline? There's one word in particular that you see over and over. There's several words that will be translated in your English translations as discipline, but there's one that you see more often than not. And it's the Greek word padeo. And padeo uh, means to provide instruction for the forming and responsible living. To educate would be a way to sum that up. That's one definition. The other definition is to assist in the development of a person's ability to make appropriate choices to practice discipline. Okay? Padeo. And it, it, it shouldn't surprise us that the same root word that makes up padeo is also the root that makes up the word child. Because this idea of discipline is, is, is tied heavily to the idea of being a child. And so when we think about discipline, we should think about the ideas of good parenting. Good parents always discipline their children in, in one way or another. And I'm going to give you just a, a, some nuances to this Greek word padeo. It can mean to correct or give guidance. 2 Timothy 2.24 says this, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently, enduring evil, correcting, that's the word padeo, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and they will come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil and not being captured by him to do his will. So you see this idea. Discipline to correct one's path in order that they are not caught in the trap of the enemy. Titus 2.11 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training, that's the word padeo, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So this is the idea of correction, of training. That's discipline. The other way this word is used sometimes is discipline in the sense of some physical action. So you see that first category is really a category of verbal admonition. So I tell you, don't go down that path. I warn you, don't do that. 
Now, the second one is more of a, I physically take some action to keep you from going down a wayward path. In fact, this word padeo is used when Jesus is being prosecuted by Pontius Pilate before he goes to the cross and Pilate's trying to let him go free because he realizes he hasn't done anything wrong. And Luke 23 says this, I, that's Pilate, will will therefore have him, that's Jesus, flogged, and that's the word padeo, and release him. So there's this idea of uh, some physical discipline in order to sort of teach a lesson so that you might not do it again. So that's what Pilate was going to do to Jesus. Eventually he loses out and uh, the crowd convinces him that Jesus should be crucified. And of course he's crucified and and dies. Hebrews 12.6 says this, and we studied this a while back. If you want to go hear more about Hebrews 12, it says this, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are without discipline, in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Again, the idea being, discipline is an act of love in the context of the parent-child relationship. Even if it's some sort of a physical action taken to keep you from going a path that's not your best. Now, I'm going to stop here and, and, and highlight something that's important to understand when we think about discipline. Like sometimes we think of discipline as punishment, uh, but it's not punishment. So I'm going, to, I'm going to explain to you the differences. Punishment is focused on a past action. So it's retribution for something past. Discipline is focused on the future. I'm disciplining you now so that in the future, your good will come. So again, punishment, retribution, discipline is formation. Punishment, the purpose is to inflict a penalty for an offense. Discipline, the purpose is to train for correction and maturity. Punishment is, the origin of that is the frustration of a parent. Discipline, the origin, is a motivation for the welfare of the child. Punishment, the result, is fear and shame. With discipline, the result is security. Why? Because you know that somebody is looking out for you, that you're not alone, that they want your best. Punishment tends to hold the parent's frustration and anger in the forefront. Discipline holds the child's best interest in the forefront. Discipline is never out of control. Often punishment is done out of control. It's important to understand that when we talk because we all come from different backgrounds and maybe the way we've experienced discipline growing up is in more of a form of punishment. This is not the kind of discipline we're talking about. We're not punishing people we're loving them wanting their best interest so the question is this kind of discipline not punishment but discipline should the church the local church be a part of the lord's discipline in our life let me ask you three questions to try to answer this 
I want you, this is participating. Everybody ready to participate? Michael, how's my volume? How's my volume in the back? Okay, all right. Okay, three questions. And you have to participate. Or you will be punished. <laughs> no. <laughs> Do you want to be a mature person? Raise your hand if you want to be, because it's kind of important. If you don't want to be, the next two questions don't really matter. Do you want to be mature? Good, okay. Go ahead and leave your hand up until you are no longer answering yes. Do you believe that discipline has helped you mature to this point in your life? Keep your hands up if, if you agree with that. Third question. Do you believe that you have reached full spiritual maturity? Sam is wagging his tail and so Sam the dog, not Sam here. Okay. Right? So if you want to be mature and you believe discipline has helped you to mature, but you don't believe that you're fully yet mature, then it seems to follow that you need some spiritual discipline in your life. And you think that it's a good thing that will help you to grow and become everything that you want to be. So the question then is, how do you receive this discipline? I think there's two main ways. The first, self-discipline, right? We love self-discipline because we get to do it. We're in control. How many of you think self-discipline is important to growing in your maturity, right? And I can do a whole sermon. In fact, when I started this, I was going to talk about both sides, and I realized there's no way I can do that. <laughs> there's so much. But self-discipline is a huge part of your spiritual maturity. You have to figure out how to self-discipline yourself to do things that you otherwise don't necessarily want to do in the moment because you know it's for your best. Prayer, reading scripture, being a part of a church, being a part of a fellowship group, all of these can be self-discipline. You say, those are things that I should want to love to do. Sorry, you won't always want to do them, and that's why you need to self-discipline yourself to do them. So self-discipline's so important in every aspect of life, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. We have to have self-discipline if we want to mature to the point that we hope to. Now, you say, that's all I need, self-discipline. I can do it myself. My question is, how's that going for you? Are you reaching the fullest maturity only on self-discipline? I was looking up some statistics on personal training. In 2001, there were somewhere around 100,000 personal training jobs in America. In 2011, there was 231,000 personal training jobs. My numbers are a little, might be a little off there, but that's a 44% increase from 2001 to 2011. Now, in the last five years, it's continued to go up. They estimate that between 2016 and 2020, there'll be 300,000 new personal training jobs in America. Why is that? It's because self-discipline doesn't always work, right? Doesn't work for me. I'm guessing it doesn't always work for you. That's why we ask people to help us, discipline us. Because we know it's for our good. And we'll spend lots of money asking people to discipline us. Physically. 
And what about spiritually? How's your self-discipline going spiritually? So my point is that self-discipline is so important and you have to be intentional and active and learning to do that, but it's not enough. And the second type of discipline is outside discipline. And who does outside discipline? Well, growing up, lots of times it was our biological parents. How many of you still enjoy your biological parents disciplining you? Just raise your hand. When they put you in timeout, they ground you, they take away your allowance. We don't really like it. So is there anybody else in our lives that knows us well enough that we give permission to speak into our life or take physical action in order to keep us from our own harm? Do you have anybody like that? And if the only person that you have like that is your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your best friend, good luck with that. That's going to hurt real bad if they're the ones disciplining you. So who else could there be? Maybe it's the community of faith. Maybe it's the church. Maybe this is part of God's design that you would grow together in a spiritual family so that you would have people that could correct you, admonish you, get in your way so that you can't go down a path of destruction. Now, if the church is just a spiritual event, then no disciplinary function is needed within the church. If the church is just a messenger of the gospel, which it is, but if it's just that, then no disciplinary function is needed or a, messen or a messenger function. If the church is just a Bible teaching institute, then no disciplinary function is needed. If the church is just a place of worship, then no disciplinary function is needed. If the church is just a community of friends with common beliefs, then no disciplinary function is needed. But if the church is a spiritual family, then I think a disciplinary function is needed within the church. And the church must, if it's doing what it's meant to do, have some way of steering people back, even when they don't want to be steered back, towards God's best for their life. Does that make sense? So we answered that question. I think, yes, the church should be involved in this. Now, how do we actually do this? And why is this the way that we do it? We got to go back to Scripture. We got to start with Scripture and end with Scripture because God gives us the guideline. Jesus explains it this way in Matthew 18. Listen closely. He says this. <clears throat> if your brother sins against you, and you could insert brother or sister. If your brother sins against you, one, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's the first step of discipline, right? If DJ offends me or sins against me or I know about it, Jesus says the first thing I should do is go to him one-on-one -on -one and talk to him about it. Keep it between me and him and see if we might correct him. So in this sense, each and every one of us is called to help with the function of discipline within the body. 
And as we'll go, we'll see how leadership within the church has a unique role within this. But really, Jesus says right here, every single person is responsible for the first step. And hopefully it doesn't have to go to the second step to help to correct somebody out of love. So go and tell him between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen to Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So that's the second step. I go to DJ. He doesn't want to listen to me. I go, I ask, I say, Ben, Chris, could you come with me and just, can we go talk to DJ? So we go talk to him. If he refuses to listen to them as well, then you go to the third step. Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Which is what he's saying here is basically, there comes a point if there is no repentance, if there's no acknowledgement of sinning against a brother or sister or against the church, that there comes a point where the best thing for them is to ask them to leave this particular family. And we'll look at why that's the last and final step in the process. Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And the idea is this. Um, this is kind of a... Uh, interesting to understand. He's basically saying, when you do this process in the power of the Holy Spirit in a true and godly way, that whatever is happening in the earthly family of the church, God is working as well in the spiritual, in the heavenly places in the same regard. So you know, you are not alone. The church is not just or primarily an earthly institution. It is first and foremost a heavenly institution, a heavenly community of people whose heavenly Father is God. And so God is with you and working in this because He cares about this person more than you even do. So the principle is this. First, uh, this is an important principle that we see from Matthew 18. We should try to keep the knowledge of sin to the smallest possible group for as long as possible. <laughs> The first thing that you do, if DJ sins against me or the church or, or something, the first thing I don't do is just start telling everybody about it. The hope is that he would come to repent. So, so, DJ has not done anything wrong. I just want to say that. He is the most holy person here, so I picked him for this analogy. All right. <clears throat> but that, that, it, that, it, that it might not seep out into the whole community, if possible, for the benefit of the DJ, for the benefit of everyone else. Uh, Titus 3, 9 through 11 says this, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are not profitable and they are worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, you see that same principle, after warning him once, then twice, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them, 
that they may be ashamed. Do not regard him at... Now, this is important. He's saying like, take one, take two steps. Say, please stop stirring up division amongst us. But if they continue to do it, you have to sort of remove yourself from that situation because it's unhealthy for you and for the church. But look at what he says. Do not... Oh, sorry, I jumped verses. Um, Have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Now, 2 Thessalonians says something similar. Chapter 3. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, here's the, here, obeying the God of Word is, or, or the Word of God is something that is very important to the church. And if he does not obey the Word of God, take note. Have nothing to do with that person. See the similarities to Titus. And then it says this, But do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And the, the idea behind that word warn is to counsel him about avoidance or cessation of an improper conduct. So there's two types of discipling that can happen. There is a warning of, hey, you're headed down this path. Don't go there. Then there's the type of discipline of, I've already headed down the path. Stop going down that path. See those two types of discipline. But the key here is that you don't regard that person as an enemy. You regard them as a brother. We treat our enemies different in the family than we do our brothers and sisters. Okay. Now we've come to sort of the quintessential example of the ultimate sort of end game of how discipline might work in the church. This is 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. This is written in your bulletins. Why don't you grab those and read along with me? I think it'll just help you sort of process this. Here what we're going to see is an example of someone who is living continuously in sexual immorality and refuses to change. And so Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, is going to tell them what to do. He says this, it is actually reported. Like, listen to the way he's saying this. It's actually reported. He's almost like, he's like, can't believe it. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. Here's what he's saying. He's like, you're supposed to be the distinct people of God and you are allowing something to happen in your community that even the pagans wouldn't allow to happen in their community. You see, see what he's saying here? He's like, what is going on? We are supposed to be set apart to be an example to the nations of the holiness of God. And you're allowing things to happen that even the non-Christians would never allow happen. That's what he's saying. What's going on? For a man has his father's wife. A man, this is not his biological mother, it's his stepmother. There is a man who is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. 
For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sanctified. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, but the leaven, the le- which is the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Basically saying, I'm not saying don't associate with anybody that's sexually immoral or greedy or these things because there's no such place (laughs) except outside of the world. But he's saying... But now I am writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what? And now he explains. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. So purge the evil person from among you. So let me just explain that last little section there because I think it's pretty important. He's basically saying the church has no business disciplining or, or judging those outside of the church. But as soon as somebody says, I am a brother or sister and I'm a part of this body, now it is our responsibility to act towards them with this new set of lenses. This is really important. So our job is not to go around judging the world around us in the sense of discipling them, to correct them, but it is the job to do that within the church. That's what Paul is saying. Now that doesn't mean that we don't make comment about the ungodliness of the world around us. It's just not our job to 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 force people into straight paths if they're crooked. So look again at verse 2 and verse 6. This is the first aim of discipline. Discipline aims to expose and to protect. So verse 2 says this, Let him who has done this to you be removed from among you. And verse 6 says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So here's what Paul is saying. Leaven, it's not, it's kind of like yeast, but not. The way they used to do uh, bread is they'd take a small piece of dough from the night before and they'd keep it and and they'd put it into the unleavened dough the next day to act as sort of a modern day yeast, how we would use it. But he's basically saying this. Sin, like yeast or leaven, is like a cancer. One, it loves to hide. It loves to hide 
And so our job and the job of discipline is to expose the cancer so that it might be removed or cut out of the family if necessary so that the rest of the family is not infected by the same issue. Does that make sense? And so in this way, church discipline shows love for the church, right? So that's that I'm going to I'm going to talk about how this discipline is love in, in several ways. This is love for the rest of the church that we should discipline those who are bringing in sin into the community to protect the rest of the church. The second thing we see is that discipline aims to warn. So look at verse 5. Verse 5 says this. You are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. If you never discipline now and you just act like everything is permissible and and nothing is dangerous or hazardous, are you not just leading people by the hand towards destruction? And so he says, better now to, when he says deliver over to Satan, he means allow the natural consequences of their sin to be uh, exposed and lived out so that they realize that it is not their good, but for their detriment that, that they do these things so that they might be saved in the end. So it's a warning. So the church, the church is not uh, enacting God's retribution through the discipline, but they're, they're trying to play, uh, paint a picture, a smaller picture of the great judgment that's coming at the end of the age, which is when you hear the words, the day of the Lord, that's talking about the day of judgment when God will judge once and for all the sin of the world. And so we painted out a smaller picture now so that people might consider their ways and turn back to the Lord before the final judgment comes. You see how that's love? So the church disciplines to show love for the individual and for the watching world. Because when the world sees a church that looks no different from them or or, or cares nothing about holiness or righteousness and doesn't do anything about it, we're painting a picture for the world of everything's fine, everything's okay. There is no such thing as a right and wrong, sin or no sin. So out of love for the individual and the watching world, we warn through the way we correct and discipline. The third thing is the discipline aims to save. Again, we saw that in verse 5, so that they may be saved in the end. The church should pursue discipline when they see a member taking a path towards death. And none of their pleading or their arm waving causes the person to turn around. That's when you have to take more drastic action, which is to say, we need to remove you from the community. Otherwise, it might not get through to them. This, again, is the church's love for the individual. The fourth thing is that discipline aims to present a good witness of Jesus. So look at verses 1 through 4. 
Verse 1 says this. It, it's actually reported. Again, remember, think of the way. It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. Why does Paul say this? He's saying, what kind of a witness are you giving to the watching world? That they're even sort of disgusted by the things that happen. And verse 4 says this, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you put these two together, he's basically saying this. You are assembling in the name of Jesus. You are representing Jesus. And when you allow sin to infect your community in this way, and even stuff that the world would think is wrong, what kind of a name are you giving to Jesus? Because you're representing Him. So when the church disciplines, it's strange to say this, but it's actually good for the non-Christian because it helps to preserve the attractiveness and the distinctiveness of God's people to preserve the name of Jesus. So I'd even say, you know, shame on us if we become so indistinct or so unattractive in the way we live and love one another that we keep people away from God's family, that we keep people away from Jesus because when they look at us, they either see no difference from the rest of the world or they even see something that's they're a little bit turned off by. So discipline is one way of, of keeping the family of God from sort of watering down and losing its saltiness. So church discipline shows love for Christ and for His name and for His reputation. So what constitutes the need for church discipline? Um... At this point, you're probably getting scared. Are we going to start disciplining everyone, you know, for showing up five minutes late to church and, you know, drinking more than their fair share of the coffee? I see you. I see you. No. Now, what we see actually in the New Testament, the specific instances of the need for church discipline, um, the examples we see specifically are sexual immorality, divisiveness, laziness, disobeying specific New Testament teachings, blasphemy, which is lying about God, and teaching heretical doctrine. So those are some of these specific examples. But the other thing, this list isn't exhaustive. The overarching principle you see is when, is this, when sin is publicly known or outwardly evident, there is a need to address it. When sin has occurred over a significant period of time, so it's not that you get disciplined over something you did in your past or something even that you're presently struggling with to overcome, but it's sort of a unrepentant, continual, uh, public sin that you see that the need for some sort of an action by the church is important. Does that make sense? And that's not to say, you know... The reason I bring that up, because it's important to know, we're all sinful and we're all struggling with things and we're all working through things, but it's when there's sort of a cavalierness and a, I don't care about working on this, or I don't, I don't, I don't really think it's an issue when it's clearly um, counter to the teachings of God, or it's clearly divisive, or it's clearly 
uh, heretical teaching, then the need for the church to step in becomes important. And remember, so why? So why, so why should I, or, or how should I receive spiritual discipline if it ever got to that point? Psalm 141.5 says this, Let a righteous man strike me. It is his kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is the oil on my head. Let my head not refuse it. This is King David who's writing this. And what he's saying and what he's reminding us is, is when we begin to mature in Christ, we begin to see discipline as a great kindness poured upon us. It is actually the thing which sanctifies us and makes us holy and, and helps us to become everything that God wants us to be. Because we recognize it as God's grace and His love in our life. Not as His punishment, not as His retribution, but it is for our good. So what's this mean for us right now? You're probably asking yourself, well, I don't feel like I need to be disciplined for anything right now, and you probably don't need to be, but there may come a time when you are. So we need to ask ourselves right now a few questions. Do we want to be a church that wants to honor the name and holiness of Christ? Do we want to be a church that's serious about spiritual maturity? Do we want to be a church that's serious about sin and repentance and forgiveness? Do we want to be a church that's serious about truly loving one another? And if we answer yes to those questions, or if you answer yes to those questions, then I think Sedaris is a good place for you. And I think then we have to become serious about figuring out how to do this, how to, how to, how to help discipline each other. When our self-discipline fails us, what's the plan? What's the next thing? We've got to be serious about figuring out how to create a community in which we can come around each other and help keep each other from destruction, to warn each other, to remind each other of God's forgiveness and His grace, to remind each other about repentance. Because this is clearly a biblical imperative that the family of God needs to help discipline one another. So here's what we'll do. Um, so I talked about part of the reason we're doing this series is we're, we're starting to talk about uh, what does it mean to do um, what we're going to call family membership, which means that you sort of uh, covenant with others in the body to be a part of the family. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be a family, or it doesn't mean you have to become a covenant member. But if you do, one of the things we'll talk about, and we'll probably, we'll probably uh, do this for the first time in the fall, this class. We're going to do it this summer, but I think we're going to move it back because we still kind of have to figure out how we want to do it. Um, but to, to be a part of, uh, to be a member at Sedaris, It'll be a voluntary thing, right? So the idea is this, that I voluntarily give permission to other people who are part of the family to speak into my life, to give me words of admonition. If they, if they, if they see me going down a path that's destructive, that, they, that you give them permission to speak into your life. And in the same way, we covenant with one another that when I see you going down a path, or I see a sin in your life that's destructive to yourself or to your, to your marriage or to your family or to the community, 
that I covenant with you that I won't be silent and let you go down, that I will say something. If you've ever had a friend who actually says the thing that needs to be said, you know those are your best friends. Not the ones that just let you do whatever you want or help you do whatever you want, but the one that stands in the road and says, that's not the way to go. We'll covenant with each other to be those people. This is an uncomfortable topic, discipline. It's uncomfortable to plan for. It's uncomfortable to implement. And, and to be honest, I don't know exactly how to do it yet. And we'll figure it out together. I love your input on this. And really, lots of times you don't figure out how to do something until it's necessary. And so it has not yet been necessary to the extent of sort of removing somebody from the community. So sometimes you just learn things as you go. But even though it's uncomfortable, let me remind us one last time that we must not let our comfort keep us from God's best in our life. Don't let your comfort keep you from God's best for your life. Here's a nice little summary I found about discipline. The necessity of discipline to deter destruction. The means of discipline, words of admonishment, and if necessary, tangible action. The motive of discipline to express love. The goal of discipline to teach obedience to God's best design for our lives. And the results of discipline, short-term pain, but long-term gain. Discipline's necessary. It's a necessary dynamic of a healthy, thriving, effective family. And we should want to be healthy. We should want to be thriving. We should want to be an effective family for Jesus' name, for the spread of the gospel in the city, so that all people might experience the redemptive grace of Jesus. I think we have to get serious about helping each other get to that place through even the uncomfortableness of discipline at times. So, email me <laughs> if, if anything I said didn't make sense or if it's, if it's scary or you're wondering how this is going to play out. Again, I don't have all the answers, but, but I'd love to talk through you. Uh, I really want to be a community that loves in a different kind of way, that loves enough to say the hard thing, that loves enough to stand in the way of destructive behavior. So if you would, would you just pray and we'll ask God to do that amongst us. Father, we thank you for your teaching and your word that you've given us clear imperative to come together, not just as an event or not just as a spiritual experience, but as a family and to do the things that families do, uh, to discipline one another when necessary, uh, not out of punishment, but out of love, that we might become all that you've designed us to be, that we might become fully uh, functioning disciples of the kingdom of God, that we might uh, learn what it means uh, to not take shortcuts, but to go the long, hard way towards your kingdom and to help others come along with us. We pray all these things because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because he went the long, hard way for us, that he took our sin upon himself on the cross, that he died in our place, that he did not take a shortcut. Help us not to be a community that takes shortcuts, but does it the way that you've designed. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, let's stand.
and uh, see what's up.